walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 67. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. Well, I'm back from a quick little pilgrimage on the Camino de Madrid over spring break, trying to get my feet back under me now, back in Portland. I couldn't have been luckier with how things played out in Spain. I was a little less lucky with the flights back. But in Spain, there were sunny days, warmer temperatures than I had experienced in Portland for at least five months, beds available when I needed to stop, and good health as I pushed onward. I didn't meet a single pilgrim on the trail until I arrived in Saagun and intersected with the Camino Frances, but at that point my walk was done and I was off to the train station heading back south. I think the Camino de Madrid gets a little overlooked. I certainly overlooked it. So here's the pitch. It's a Camino you can start with practically no ground transportation, flying in from outside of Europe. Straight to Madrid, take a quick metro shuttle, and you can launch straight into your pilgrimage, no fuss, no muss. The way marking is fine, maybe a little spotty in places, but you know, that's part of the adventure. Good number of albergues, though not quite as many open when I was walking prior to Semana Santa. Lots of castles. It's probably the highest concentration of castles to kilometers I've hit on a pilgrimage. There's even a really fun mountain crossing. I think it's actually the highest point on a main branch of the Camino in Spain, something like 1,800 meters. Plus, you even have the city of Segovia, which is worth a visit on its own. As I walked, I had today's episode in my mind, because I'd completed the conversation a couple days before departure, and because I'm excited to share it with you now. I spoke with Nancy Louise Fry for this episode, the author of Pilgrim Stories, on and off the road to Santiago, journeys along an ancient way in modern Spain. This is another one of those books that was seminal for me, right up there alongside Gitlitz and Davidson's The Pilgrimage Road to Santiago and Jack Hits Off the Road. For her dissertation in anthropology, Nancy conducted extensive field work on the Camino in the 1990s, ultimately resulting in this book. Even several decades removed from its writing, It remains one of the most perceptive and illuminating representations of pilgrim experience on the Camino. However, Nancy has never really left the Camino. Today, she continues to study the pilgrimage experience, with her focus shifting towards the impact of digital technology on contemporary pilgrims. She also leads group walks through her company On Foot in Spain. As such, our conversation has three main parts to it. First, we look back at Nancy's research in the 1990s. Then, we talk about why a similar study wouldn't work today, an issue linked to the prevalence of smartphones and other technology on the way. Finally, we discuss the polarizing views on groups on the Camino and the ways that a group experience can be enriching. It's a jam-packed conversation, but I found it really informative, and it stuck with me all the way through the Camino de Madrid. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Nancy Louise Fry is an anthropologist and the author of Pilgrim Stories, On and Off the Road to Santiago, Journeys Along an Ancient Way in Modern Spain. Her most recent research on the impact of digital technologies on the Camino is published at walkingtopresence.com. She also leads groups of pilgrims on the Camino through On Foot in Spain. Nancy, you wrote your doctoral dissertation on the Camino. Pilgrim Stories became a really influential book for certainly my generation of pilgrims coming in and learning about the Camino in English. What drew you to this as a subject of study? I was drawn to the subject of pilgrimage, um, the Camino de Santiago in particular when I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley studying cultural anthropology. I already had a background and interest in contemporary religious movements. And my thesis advisor was a 
expert in Spain and also religious movements and folklore. And I knew that I would do my work in Spain, but I didn't have the topic. So after my first year of graduate school, I went to Spain to travel and I had one of these gut instincts about wanting to go to Galicia. At the time, this is 1992, this is the year of the Olympics in Barcelona. The Camino was really not on anybody's radar in the States, in the world in general. It was much more Spanish and European. I got to Santiago, happened to be the around the 24th, 25th of July, which is the Saints Day. And I had been to many pilgrimage sites with a very religious context to them and a set of behaviors on the part of ritual practices of the participants. And I saw a new type of pilgrim. I saw these people arriving with backpacks on a long journey. It wasn't just about being at the Shrine of Santiago. And I started to talk to some of these people because I was intrigued. You know, who are you? What are you doing? Where have you come from? And I discovered at that time that people were recreating in their own way, in a sense, and reanimating this grand medieval pilgrimage, the Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James. And the way that they were doing is that they wanted to go back to something, wanted to walk with their feet in the footsteps of their ancestors and retrace the old ways and somehow connect to the pilgrimage this way. And I thought, wow, this is this is very interesting topic. What is going on? What is motivating these people? Is it religious? Who are they? And what is it meaning to them? What is this new type of pilgrimage? What is it? So that's how it all began. So how did you go about this research? What did your process entail? Well, one of the things that was fascinating about trying to research this pilgrimage was it was different than any pilgrimage studies, which tend to focus on the center of the pilgrimage at the shrine. Like many study, if you're in a Catholic tradition, for example, you'll know about Lourdes and the Catholic centers, the important ones like Lourdes or Fatima. And there are often many studies about what pilgrims do at these places. But what was very evident was that it was the journey that these people were making to this particular site that was significant so that I had to figure out a way to understand the nature of the journey, not just what is happening to people in the place of Santiago, because the pilgrimage is about this journey that people are creating and undertaking and what is happening to them as a rite of passage through this. So how do you study a rite of passage that has no real beginning? It has an end point in a sense, but everybody is starting from a different place as traditionally people just walked out their front door and that was where people started. So how do you get around this? At that time, the vast majority of people were trying to undertake what is known as the Camino Francais, the French way, and not as many other routes were opened up. So my research focused on what was at that time, the vast majority of people who were undertaking the pilgrimage. From the border of France and Spain, I decided to choose that segment. So how can I track people? How can I understand the journey? Because you understand that the journey is a process. People are going through some kind, if you understand as a rite of passage, it has three stages where you have a separation from the familiar and the known. And then you step out into the unknown, which is leaving home, packing your bag, all the things entailed with that important step. And then it's the journey itself, wherever that might start, however you've defined what that's going to be, that space. And then they return back home. That's final part is very important. So how can I track what happens to people in these spaces? So I decided to work in different, at the time they called them refugios, then they became known as albergues, and they have different names. But hostels where people stay and spend the night is all very, very different, just beginning back in the 90s. And so I decided to try to put myself in different points along the way and in Santiago to research and track people, what was going on with them in different places. I discovered that, of course, the journey, it's not just about the journey, because pilgrimage, people love to talk about the journey. If you read, you know, the vast majority of the accounts are what happens on the way. 
but we just said it's a rite of passage. So what happens in the afterwards? How do you actually take it home? You know, more than just the big, great adventure. How does this, what is significance does it have? So that was another part of my research that actually evolved was how do I follow up? How do I find out? Did people make changes in their lives? Did it go on to impact them? Those kinds of questions became an important part. So that's a long about way of saying, I set myself up in different places along the way, working as an hospitalera, somebody who takes care of pilgrims. I had a big stint in Santiago de Compostela to check that whole area. I then visited people in their homes in different countries in Europe and also in the States. And something that is totally outdated now, it would never happen anymore, letter writing, (laughs) letter writing. And I have the most incredible collection of letters it's like a historical document now of the return. When you know that whole process, it makes sense how you were able to produce pilgrim stories and have such a detailed, extensive accounting of the pilgrimage experience. It's remarkably thorough and obviously not comprehensive, literally speaking, but it feels comprehensive because there are so many different viewpoints on so many different aspects of the walk. I'm wondering for you today, looking back on it now, and and you haven't left pilgrimage, you still are connected to the Camino. Are there certain insights or discoveries that you formed about pilgrimage and about what makes pilgrimage transformative that you carry forward now? The concept of pilgrimage as a rite of passage, I believe is a valuable one that people can carry with them as It's a process that has this beginning, this acceptance of realization that you're moving a transition from one stage of your life, whatever it might be, and maybe just be a holiday. But I am going and I'm embarking on something that is potentially different. Then when you're in that liminal space, that space where things are a bit different, being open and accepting and taking what comes, and then the important significance and awareness, and this is one of the things that I found to be most challenging for people, is to how to take the Camino home. How can I bring Camino home into my life so that the Camino is actually something I live in my daily life? Because there are lessons that people seem to gather on the Camino about presence, about openness, reflection, going with the flow, and how can I bring those things into my daily life, reduction of needs, lowering of necessities. And I think pilgrimage in this particular case has been powerful and people are attracted to it from around the world. There's a desire for simplicity, a return to something more authentic within themselves and in the world that the idea of going on a long walk in beautiful nature sounds very appealing. And people are drawn to this idea of space, of openness, mental space, physical space, spiritual space, whatever that might be, having a break. This is this opportunity. I believe that that is possible 30 years ago, today, and in the future. It's how you mentally come to the experience and the limitations that you impose on yourself or feel imposed upon you more than a lot of the superfluous stuff that people like to get worked up about, like groups ruining the Camino, for example. We'll come back to that. <laughs> the One of the things I love, one of the my favorite things about doing the podcast is getting to talk with people like you who were on the Camino before the boom, who could see it in that sort of early stage of kind of returning in the 1980s and especially the 1990s. And you mentioned that you were based in six different places. We're not going to have time to go into all six of those. But I'm wondering if there's one or two of those places that you can look back on and what life was like in the 1990s and how it compares with now, but especially just like, what do you recall about 
one or two of those bases of operation you had in the 1990s and what the Camino was like at that point in time? I'm going through this whole sea of memories. It's just washing over <laughs> me of different places and different experiences. And one that comes to mind immediately is Belorado. Belorado is a small village near Logroño, Logroño and Burgos. It was at the time a very small village when I worked there. When I walked and reached there, my first time walking the pilgrimage in 1993, it was the first time I encountered a refuge, an albergue, a hospitalera, with a Dutch woman working inside. And I remember, who are you? What are you doing here? What is this whole albergue system? Things that we you, people take for granted now, like, well, the albergues have always been here. Or, I actually witnessed the rise of all of these. And I know the woman who opened up the very first one out of the kindness of her heart, based on her experiences of walking the way. So it was just the modern pilgrimage just in its birth. So here was this woman in this small building attached to the church on one side, and there was this parish building that had been given over to the pilgrims. And it was actually the old theater of the town. So they had made this makeshift area, common area down below with a big wooden table. And I can just see now kind of the little entranceway and all the backpacks spread around. And then imagine a tiny stage <laughs> in, in, in the back of this room with like steps on the side that would have been the access way up to the stage. And this had been converted into a kitchen. It was just like a big open space. So you come in and there's the theater kitchen and it's right there. And on the left, they had put in a bathroom and a shower for the pilgrims. And then upstairs, a loft had been converted into this bed space. So I stayed there as a pilgrim. And then when I returned the next year as to do my research, I worked there as it was one of my, it was the second place where I was staying. And there was also a Dutch woman and she was a real trial by fire. I learned, you had you worked really, really hard. You know, the, <laughs> I learned more vocabulary about plumbing in, in Spanish than I knew in English because you <laughs> had to fix this or that or go and find things. I had a close tie with the parish priest. We got invited like one day. He came to the albergue and he said, uh, Marika and Nancy, come and uh, you've got to come to this little fiesta that we're having in town. And so we left. We managed to leave. We told the pilgrims, look, fiesta's on. Let's go. And <laughs> off we went. And I couldn't believe it. We were in this little tiny village and there was this little tiny bullfight that had been staged. And it was just wild. And it was just and when I did my research, what was really, really interesting afterwards on this little place that I spent a lot of hours, memories just keep flooding through my brain of different people that I met there, wonderful experiences. But later on, when I was doing my research and I would say to people, ask them open-ended questions, tell me, tell me about certain refuges that you, or that had powerful significance to you. And curiously, Belorado was one of these places that people responded. And one of these incidences, it turned out that it had actually been built, this little theater attached to the church. And what are churches really? Do you know? What do you mean? Churches are cemeteries. Oh, okay. Yeah. People want to be buried in holy places. So this albergue was actually built on top of the old cemetery. And so <laughs> several people who I just, in open-ended questions, tell me about is that they remembered that being a place really charged with a lot of very interesting energy. And, and of course, just lots of hanging out time, just freedom from time, from the mental, you know, you got bored mm -hmm. and you dealt with it. You hung out with other people. You strolled around the village. You made a communal dinner together. We used to organize in that particular albergue. We used to organize and say, hey, pilgrims, do you want to bring stuff together and make something? And people kind of hem and haw and, well, yeah, okay, maybe that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and then you go out and you kind of organize them and you do it. And then you'd have the, and it'd be, it'd be fun. I remember one woman frying like 30 eggs in this 
<laughs> and another guy making gazpacho out of in a, in, in a one of the thing where you soaked your feet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so just a lot of good, simple the simplicity, the simple pleasures. It resonates with me how in those earlier days, you know, today we have purpose-built albergues all along the route. In the early days, it was just like, what is a, a space of some size where we can cram some pilgrims in? And so, yeah, you get tossed into old theaters or random other spaces that certainly were never intended to be places of accommodation. And there was a certain flavor to that, the being housed in, in such wildly different spaces. Well, it's an interesting balance that you start to develop because a certain level of adversity or discomfort or going with the flow ends up oftentimes being small nuisances that you have to work your way through, but they end up teaching you lessons or being memorable. But as the pilgrimage evolved, there's a tendency also to want to help pilgrims, make things easier for them. Mm -hmm. So I remember very clearly, for example, in the 90s, the a concept of a washing machine in Alberta, I mean, you were just hoping you had running water or hot <laughs> water. We didn't even always have hot water. Sometimes it just was cold in the summer. And, that, and that's what there was. You know, I mean, it's just the way it was. And people would sometimes come into the albergue and they would say, is there hot water? And if they, if they wanted hot water, then they would go on to the next place. You know, people always are looking for something. And when coin-operated machines came in, like that was kind of controversial. You know, are we getting soft? You can just see progressive things of as things get more comfort, because why not? Why not make it more comfortable? Because we can. And we have the facility and it's attractive and people want it easier, but then, then they have nostalgia. They like the adversity. So you can't really have it both ways. You know, <laughs> you want your Wi-Fi, or you don't want your Wi-Fi. you know, you want, you want certain things, but you want to actually be washing out of the sink, but you want to have your Wi-Fi. <laughs> when I was preparing for this, I was thinking, you know, it's almost 30 years now since you did that study, it would be interesting to take that approach that you followed for pilgrim stories, come back, do it again, have that point of comparison over time. And you responded to me basically saying, no, it wouldn't work. So why wouldn't it work today? It wouldn't work for many reasons. I've written about this actually and discussed it in, in, in different articles. Because the hospitalera served a really important function. And me as an anthropologist, I actually served an important function for people. When you have your cell phone, this reduces a lot of emotional needs that people have. Sounding boards. Imagine that you're on the way and you have no connection to anyone. You have to deal and share with people that are around you. If you have an issue or you're trying mulling something over or you're not certain. Now the nature of communications are you outsource those emotional needs to your friends and your family back home. Look, this has come up or this has happened. And so you're having kind of a constant daily dealing. Whereas when you're going without this kind of long time, in the past, when you're when you're going without that, you're kind of accumulating experiences. And there might be someone like me who is asking you some questions in an albergue one day, and you feel a need to talk. It's an open ear. And it's something that is very, it's an expression. This can still happen, of course. There are people mm -hmm. who don't want to share anything with their friends and their family, and they keep everything inside. And then they find someone on the way. So I'm not saying these things don't happen in the contemporary period. But in general, there's a lot of outsourcing of your emotional needs in a very immediate way that didn't used to happen. So my research would be different in that. I don't think people would necessarily want to talk to me at length and ask and go into in-depth conversations like they did before. Many people loved having a sounding board. And then, as I was saying previously, that one of my research techniques with follow-up interviews was actually writing letters, was 
asking people, could you please respond? How has the pilgrimage been meaningful to you? And I suppose they could do it by email, but I have letters and emails from people, but it's not quite the same as someone sitting down and writing a letter. We don't write letters anymore. So you could do follow-up interviews. But when I did, I did a survey in 2015 because I was very curious. I did a, a little study in 2015. I wanted to know what was one day in Holy Week, just kind of a sample of cell phone use on the Camino in 2015. And so I, I interviewed a whole bunch of people. I had a form they filled out and I spoke to them. And then I did a follow-up with them by email. And I got a sample of about 115 people and no one wrote me back. <laughs> so, you know, people flooded, their inboxes are flooded. So why are you going to respond? So no one wrote me back. And then I did a second follow-up interview. And I think, sorry, in the first one, the first time, I think two or three people wrote me back. And ironically, they were the people who didn't have phones of the 118. There was like a total <laughs> of like two or three. And it happened to be the people who didn't carry phones. Then when I did the follow-up interview, I got like three or four more, but it's that inundation of information overload, so many people. And I don't think that people would give the same time and care that they did in the past when you weren't flooded with this information in the same way. It's just our mental demands have increased significantly in the 21st century. I'm thinking about how that connects to boredom. You mentioned boredom before. It's always one of the things that surprises me when walking with my students in the summer because we don't let them bring their phones. So it's the first extended phone detox for them in four or five years in most cases. And they've gone over those four or five years without ever being in a situation where it's like, I have two hours, I have nothing to do, and I can't immediately seek distraction in my phone. And they haven't actually ever learned how to be bored. It seems like it's a skill we're losing. Oh, beyond doubt. Here's a wonderful little volume that you can suggest to your students. It's an absolutely fabulous book written by Alan Lightman, who is a, a neurobiologist, in praise of wasting time. And this is one of the skills that, unfortunately has been significantly reduced by our instant gratification through our digital habits. Studies show that the frustration tolerance is diminished when, again, once again, you outsource your needs. You have something, you're bored for five seconds, you can pick up your phone and you can find entertainment rather than working through the nature of whatever that boredom might represent? Or how can I resolve this within myself? Where can I, what could I, other solutions can I find rather than finding a solution beyond? So I, I imagine that's a very valuable experience for your students. How do they, how do they respond? They explore, they play games, they find new topics of conversation, and they write in journals. So those tend to be the big things. But a lot of it is just getting up and moving around and experiencing the world outside. Before we banned smartphones, I vividly remember being in Pietrasanta, Italy, on the Via Francigena, beautiful, beautiful town. And the kids were all just slumped over their phones in the, in the hallway in our accommodation for two hours burning through the afternoon, and I was horrified. Once we got rid of phones, they suddenly re-engaged with the world to a much higher degree. Right. And this is one of the things I also have spoken about in some of my articles, and this isn't an original idea of mine, this comes from studies, is that what you don't use, you atrophy. Mm. <laughs> Whatever it might be, if you don't use your senses, you atrophy those senses. It's such a shame. So you're really giving them a gift, I mean, a precious gift, by allowing them to open to their senses. Yeah, the whole idea of neuroplasticity, that we are rewiring our brains all the time through what we choose to do and what we choose to not do. 
and the Camino having that month or more to build new habits, build new connections can be really valuable. And you've touched on this, the research you're doing, it falls under this umbrella of walking to presence. You publish your findings on walkingtopresence.com. What are some other insights you've arrived at through your research about the relationship between digital technology and pilgrimage, or maybe more accurately, why pilgrimage can be enriched when we wean ourselves from digital technology? I think one of the important elements is that people make informed choices. Digital habits have become so habituated, so commonplace. People know oftentimes, I don't think that they realize that they are making choices or that they have choices. And one reason I wrote the article about 15 ways to keep your head out of the cloud was so that people could reflect on how their habits, digital habits, influence their pilgrimage experience. Because the brain on phone, whether you're on the Camino or off the Camino, is not the same as brain off phone. There are very clear neural connections that are you know, engage us, keep us addicted, these applications. They're using all of the social psychology principles on us to keep us engaged, to keep our heads down, to keep us in those digital spaces, not for our best interest, but for the best interest of these producers. What does that mean for pilgrimage experience? I think the most significant change that digital habits have brought, unchecked digital habits, because there's a huge, vast range of, of course, how, how people can take tech to the Camino. Many, many choices, many options. But the important thing is this awareness. And it's not this concept that digital is bad and what was before was good. It's this simplistic black and whites really serve nothing. The important thing is to understand is that in that you have to kind of visualize that in the world before digital in that rite of process I was describing before, when you left home, you left pilgrimage as a process of body and mind. So you left in both body and mind. You said goodbye to your family. Your family had the expectation and friends that you were going to be away, that you would not be in contact, that you would be more in this particular space, a space that was agreed upon, consensualized, that you would be away in a sense. And you prepared yourself mentally in a way for that. That was, Or maybe you'd write a letter, you would ring back or something like this. So then all of a sudden you're in this bubble and you're in this space and you're living in this space. And it's one big cycle of time, this time away. And maybe you leave it from time to time by making a contact, but more or less you're in this space. And each day is also part of a whole. The Camino is not when you're walking and then at the end of the day, you have your tech time and you do your other stuff and you get really busy. You have so much to do when you're on the Camino. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get up in the morning and then you do your Camino, you walk. No, when your mind is only in this particular place, you're always on the Camino. The Camino is is now. It's this now sense. It's this profound now sense that you're in all the time. So when you go with unchecked digital habits, when I say unchecked is that you haven't reflected, you haven't made choices. You're, you're just continuing digital habits from your daily life. And you leave in your body and you have this great physical experience and you suffer the trials and these are all really profound and important. But the mental trials are significantly changed and the mental adversities, which are really important, are significantly changed. And so what can you do? You can reflect on the place and the role that you want to have, the relationship that you want to have with home. When your brain is on phone, (laughs) on the Camino, and you're ultra connected, I have this image that I've 
published in some of my work where it shows the pilgrim, you know, before you had this mentally bracketed time away, it was just this space that I was describing of out of time space, this present where you're able to be in that moment much more. It's much easier to maintain presence rather than something you have to constantly go to. You're just, the Camino is what that was. So when you're with a digital connection, you're connecting perhaps back home before you even start the Camino, you're already connecting online with people who you might meet up with. You're developing relationships. You're mentally very present there. You have the ability to check. You know, you get lost. You can just look it on your phone. You can you outsource a lot of skills that you might have. You know, the booking process, everything has changed significantly where you can book ahead and you can contact one another, fluidity, communication, and people like to maintain those oftentimes those connections and they want to maintain connections with friends, family, social media, where they are, what they're doing. And that just keeps you with your mind in the cloud much of the time when you're, when you're doing that. So how can you make choices? I received a letter from a woman on the Camino. This was from a woman who wrote to me in December of 2022. And she said that she had walked in the Camino in 2005. And it was a very different experience in 2005. And then she decided to walk again this last year along the Camino Portuguese. And she said, I've been so dismayed at the changes in the Camino. The smartphone and social media have taken away so much of the richness. I felt it was hopeless even trying to explain this to most on their first journey like this. I have wrestled with it for months now, feeling sad, frustrated, but also grateful that I know it can be different. So she was just talking about her own experience and what she wanted to do. It's very difficult to now travel anywhere without digital connection or having a smartphone. It's just a reality of of our daily lives now, but you can make certain choices that can reduce the presence of the digital experience if you want to, if you want to be more present on the Camino. There are things, for example, like talking with home before you leave. What kinds of expectations do you want to have? Would you like to be able to have one-way conversation? If there's oftentimes people say that people are afraid, they want to know how I am. So what can you do to make home feel okay and you feel okay by sending just one-way communications? Those are kinds of things, decisions and choices that people can make. Some people feel that they need to write all the time every day, do they? Also ask family to be receptive to the possibility that maybe your needs change. Maybe initially you want to talk, but then maybe you go more quiet. So the possibility that your experience and your desire to be connected can evolve over the course of the journey. So how can you manage those kinds of possibilities? So that's preparing home and also just doing a bit of reflection. What do I want my journey to be? Is it something for me to have quiet time, space, reflection? What can I do to enhance those things? What things do keep me distracted? Do I feel distracted when I'm looking up certain social media? Could I potentially reduce certain habits so that I could actually give myself some mental space? Why do I fill up my mental space? Don't I want mental space? So why do I fill it? <laughs> so these kinds of just basic questions. So if I really do want mental space, how can I give it to myself? One thing that we know is the way that in our brain, the sounds that phones make tap into and distract us and send off a little dopamine. Got to see what that is. So I recommend that if people want to reduce that they turn off all types of notifications, anything extraneous. And, you know, again, reflect, do I really need to see the news or the sports or this or that? We also know for brain function that nighttime use, early morning use, when do you feel like you want to use it? Are there times that you 
really need to use, you know, when, so set yourself perhaps windows in the day. If you do want to connect or you want to do something, give yourself limits. What mm -hmm. kind of limits can you give for yourself? And then put it away, put it on airplane mode. You want to use it as a camera, put it on airplane mode and you want to have your camera because you want to take photos. That way you can have it. You can be functional. You don't have to look at anything. It's not going to be pinging and distracting you, but you have it for a camera or if in emergency, if you did want to have it, you know, it's there. Those are just a couple of ideas. It's good advice. Okay. Let's talk about groups. You've been leading groups, small group walks on the Camino through On Foot in Spain for more than two decades now. I take groups of high schoolers on pilgrimage many, many years over these past two decades. So we're talking group leader to group leader. What got you started in this? The first time I walked the Camino in 1993, I had the incredible privilege of going with two of the most important Camino scholars in the United States. Unfortunately, both of them have passed away, but Linda Davidson and David Gitlitz. These two remarkable scholars of the Camino and other subjects, periodically since the 1970s, had led groups of students along the pilgrimage way. And they didn't do it every year. It was something that they did maybe in the holy years or with big spaces apart. And it just so happened in 1993, the year that I wanted to do it, it was also a holy year, that they were going to run one of their educational walks along the way. They would be walking it over eight weeks with a support vehicle, with a library inside, and doing our academic studies, walking, sleeping in tents, sleeping in albergues, sleeping in hostels, a whole combination of different things along the way, and walking every day. This was such an incredible experience for me. And even at that time, I was aware of walking alone is the way that one must do pilgrimage to have a powerful experience. And one of the lessons that I repeat has been repeated to me over and over again is that there is no formula for profound experience. There is no, if you follow X, Y, and Z, you're gonna have the Camino transformation experience. It's so individual to each person. And whether you go as an individual or as in a group, you can have your own profound experiences. So my first walk along the Camino in 1993 was in a group with these scholars and five other students. There were six students and the two scholars. It was incredibly transformative for me. So I came from a place of knowing the power of being an individual within a group and that just because you're in a group doesn't mean that you are a headless sheep <laughs> <laughs> that is being spoon-fed or some material and you're not having any experience. So, uh, <laughs> so how did it start? When I finished my PhD and I wrote Pilgrim Stories, in 1998, I decided to organize my own academic pilgrimage. Mm. And my partner and I also organized, had six students from around the United States and Canada. And in June 1st to June 30th, we walked the Camino and I did an academic course. We walked the whole way, but we also had a support vehicle for our materials, the educational materials, but everyone walked all the way at the same time. And I discovered that that was an incredible experience. And so my partner and I said, look, we've done it for students. I also was working, I had worked for Smithsonian Institution and led educational tours and thought, I would like to take and educate more people on the Camino, a wider audience, and create a walking classroom. That was how I was going to take the Camino out into the world. 
and share my passion and love for the Camino rather than in a university setting. I wanted to do it actually walking and living on the way. And that's how On Foot in Spain started and creating this incredible, what I call the grand tour of the Camino. It's this cultural historical extravaganza of the historical way from the Pyrenees to Santiago de Compostela and very special. I want to talk about the experience of being in a set group for the entirety of the pilgrimage. Because when people set out on the Camino outside of a group, it's common for them to form de facto Camino families. They start to walk in unison with others, but those aren't permanent. They aren't rigid. They are in flux. People take days off. They go different distances. They come together. They come apart. But in a group, you're committing to this group of people for the whole walk. And in my experience, that can be really quite powerful. And I think that it is a valuable aspect of the group experience. How do you look at that? There was a phrase in the in the, in the 90s, you can start on the Camino alone, but you never end alone. And mm-hmm. this idea, as you're saying, that the desire to associate. So people do make groups, people want to socialize. So it is normal that you have a group of companions that you're going with. So if you come with a group that's preformed, what is that like? For me, what I have found over and over again is that people will come on our trips with probably the group experience as one of the very low expectations Mm -hmm. that they're not actually thinking, oh, I'm going to go because I I really want to make a meet a neat group of people. They want to go for the culture. They want to go for the history. They want to experience the walking. They want to experience all of the wonderful elements that the Camino represents. But over and over again, (laughs) the group experience by the end of the trip is like at the high point Mm -hmm. is the connections you make the things that you share along the way, the common experiences, because one of the beauties and the potentiality of pilgrimage is the realization that we are all pilgrims on this earth. We are all just people. And if you take off all these silly layers of (laughs) group, single pack, car, bike, whatever it might be, you'll see that there's just a human inside with another story and we all have our issues and our challenges and we have so much to offer one another. So this is what happens in these groups that people come together and they're walking with one another and they have the opportunity to engage and share in ways that they perhaps never would. And it is so deeply meaningful. We have had groups that wanted to travel again people who didn't know each other they have we've actually had groups say look nancy and i've had 10 of a group come back and say we want to do another trip and they've done it and people all the time i have connections of people who are friends they make lifetime friends on their on their group trips with with us i mean it's silly to say that (laughs) i don't even know what do people say (laughs) i'm not sure (laughs) The the criticism, I mean, the, the most common thing that I see when I'm looking on Camino forums these days is that companies, businesses offering group experiences on the Camino are emblematic of the growing commercialization of the Camino, which comes at a cost, and that a big part of the the Camino experience is having to navigate this individually and be in charge of your choices. And so something is lost when you outsource that to the group. Those are the most common things I see. Right, right. Well, you know, like I said at the beginning, the scapegoat. There have been people trying to find scapegoats on the Camino of why the Camino is getting ruined and commercialized. I've been hearing since the 1990s, the different groups that are ruining the Camino, they're were lots and lots of articles and concerns about people doing it as cheap tourism. And these weren't people in groups. These were just considered to be young people who were on the way and they were just taking advantage of the albergue system, but they were walking like other people, but it was cheap tourism. They didn't have the right motives. Mm. So now it's changed. So now people who don't have those right motives, they found other things to blame, quote unquote, right motives. One of the things that I absolutely love about 
this Camino is this 13th century poem about openness and tolerance. I don't know if you know this. It's from Rontes Valles. Mm -hmm. And I like to read it to people because to me, it, the Camino is about openness and tolerance and humility, respect, and not making generalizations. And in terms of group experiences, of course, with any type of company in development of products along the way, I mean, there are groups and groups. So I imagine that there's some that are fostering this experience. But then again, in the albergue system, people are just part of this, also a bigger system of, that they've purchased into. The Camino has been commercialized. I mean, this is part of its, it's always been changing and evolving and growing. But let me just read this 13th century poem. It's one stanza of a very long poem, but I've always loved it. And it says, the door is open to all, to sick and healthy, not only to Catholics, but also to pagans, Jews, heretics, idlers, and the vain. And to put it briefly, both the good and profane. So from the 13th century, there's this idea of tolerance and openness. And I think just labeling groups or group operators as the root of all evil of the Camino is a limited idea. What stands out to me most, going back to some of the things you were saying about technology, is you have to be very deliberate and thoughtful about what it is you are hoping to get out of the experience. And I think it's probably fair to say that if the biggest thing that you want to cultivate on the Camino is something related to independence, then the group experience probably doesn't make as much sense for you. But if you are looking for other things, then it can be a tremendously powerful experience to be part of that group for the duration of the experience and to know that when you come home, when no one in your life will be able to understand what it is that you've done, you are connected to this group for the rest of your life who has that shared language, who has all of those memories in common. There is an ongoing value and benefit to that that deepens the pilgrimage experience in very positive ways. So I think it can be a really good fit for people based on what their goals are for their pilgrimage. Yes, of course. It's always important to reflect on what your goals are in pilgrimage. And once again, this idea that one size does not fit all. Mm -hmm. And there are many different ways of doing the Camino, engaging with the Camino. And for some people, having an individual experience and being quiet is what is most meaningful and significant for them. And sometimes people are concerned that groups take away from that kind of potential experience. But I also believe it's very important for people to realize that they have choices of when you walk, where you walk, it's evident that there are certain areas along the Camino that are busier because of the way that the Camino has evolved and this concept of the last 100 kilometers. And that this is a very modern manifestation of the way that this Compostela certificate is a document that is meaningful, getting a document for pilgrimage. And what this has done, actually, they want to look at the that people are concerned or criticizing or critical of group experience or how there's massification at different points. It's really because of these decisions between the church and the local government of how the 100 kilometer radius around the center, pilgrimage center, Santiago, is, is impacted because of this Compostela document. If you actually got rid of the Compostela document and said, you don't need a certificate to have a meaningful pilgrimage. You know, you don't need the institutional pat on the back. It's just a piece of paper. And threw that out the window, it wouldn't matter anymore. And you wouldn't have a massification at the 100 kilometer point because you would just walk the Camino. The Camino isn't 100 kilometers. The Camino is whatever you want it to be. Well, Nancy, you mentioned David and Linda. It was a thrill for me to get to talk to them a handful of years ago. Their book was tremendously influential for me. 
the same is true for you. Pilgrim Stories, I read it very early in my experience. I had my very first group of students in 2004 read it before we set out on pilgrimage. And I've just benefited a great deal from your work. So thank you for doing it. And thank you for speaking with me. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me and buen camino. After our conversation, Nancy followed up because she wanted to underscore two big takeaways. First, there's no one right way, no one-size-fits-all approach to doing pilgrimage or achieving personal transformation on pilgrimage. And second, transformation isn't even the goal for all pilgrims, nor should it be. For those of us who are really immersed in this pilgrimage stuff, tracking posts in Camino forums, reading pilgrim journals, listening to podcasts, we constantly encounter strong beliefs, maybe even strident beliefs, about how the Camino should be done. Some of it is personal opinion. Other arguments are evidence-based insights emerging from research. Some of it is outraged reaction from the end of a hot hike when the albergue was full. On one hand, it's easy to start to feel like there's one right way to do the Camino, to make your view of things prescriptive or dogmatic. On the other, though, it's also easy to respond to suggestions or advice as judgmental impositions, especially when that advice conflicts with your own preferred approach to the Camino. I'm thinking about this through the lens of Nancy's research from Walking to Presence, and on digital technology, and the journey I just made on the Camino de Madrid. In recent years, I've gotten into the habit of listening to audiobooks when I walk. Not all day, but on these walks where I'm alone and I'm going for many hours, it helps. Plus, I love to read and I love to walk, so combining those two things is just about as good as it gets for me. Sometimes I can become self-critical with this, thinking that I'm somehow lessening the experience by being plugged in, by not being fully engaged with the world around me. More often, though, I think about how the two experiences actually become interconnected. Great literature transports you emotionally, and that can trigger some reflective processes when you unplug. Historical works add depth to the places you're walking through, helping you to see them differently. And in my memory, there are places where I can immediately connect a place and a plot. The visual reminders of where I was as I listened to some pivotal moment in a book. They become linked together permanently in my mind, and I really like that. So I hold two things true with that. On one hand, I recognize that I am probably losing something when I plug in and listen to an audiobook instead of the sounds of the world around me. On the other, I'm gaining something significant for me. And to me, that's where Nancy's point about intention comes into play. What exactly is my goal for the walk? What am I trying to accomplish? And if I want to listen to audiobooks while I walk, Are there any ground rules that I want to set for myself to ensure that I don't get totally sucked in at the cost of more important aspects of the experience, more important aspects as I perceive them and define them? As I thought that through, I arrived at a couple of ground rules for me. I don't start the day with the audiobook going. I walk for at least the first hour without it. I don't end the day with the audiobook. I unplug earlier. And anytime I'm approaching a town or a village, I unplug. Those baseline parameters ensure that I create space for opening myself up to reflection at key points in the walk, while also making me open to conversation with others. And on this most recent walk, at least, I was quite content with that. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Nancy Louise Fry. You can find Nancy at walkingtopresence.com and onfootinspain.com. 
Her book, Pilgrim Stories, is available through all major online bookstores. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back again next week. Nobody asked me.